You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So in 1935, uh, Fiorella LaGuardia was the mayor of New York City. He was known as the Little Flower by New Yorkers because he stood five foot four and always wore a carnation on his lapel. He was a unique man, a person in a prominent position in one of the uh, most powerful cities in the world and yet was known for riding the New York City fire trucks, uh, taking orphanages to baseball games. And when the New York City papers went on strike, his voice would appear on the radio to read the Sunday funnies to kids. In one cold night, LaGuardia showed up to night court. He dismissed the judge for the evening and took over the bench. And there was a woman who was charged with stealing a loaf of bread for her granddaughters. Uh, And the shopkeeper showed up in court not wanting to drop the charges. And she said, this is a bad neighborhood, Your Honor. She has to be punished to teach other people around here a lesson. And the mayor sighed and turned to the woman and said, I have to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. Ten dollars or ten days in jail. And as the words are coming out of his mouth, he reaches in his pocket and pulls out a $10 bill and says, here is the fine, which I now remit. And furthermore, I am going to fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so that her grandchildren can eat. The following day, the paper reported that $47.50 was turned over to the stunned woman, and 50 cents of that was contributed by the shopkeeper and the 70 other petty criminals who were in the courtroom that day. And each was so shocked that they stood up and gave the mayor a standing ovation. We have a word for that, and it is called grace. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. What is life's most critical question? I imagine that each one of us have a few of them. The question that is kind of underneath all the other questions, the thing that keeps us awake at night. And if God were happened to invade our earth in human flesh like he did 2,000 years ago, I imagine we would want to ask him that question. Our only problem is that we're probably not honest with ourselves about what the question is. Because when God did come to earth, and when God did speak with an audible voice, and when God did address us personally, the questions that were asked of him were not the most fundamental ones. The questions that arose by both his followers and his naysayers were questions like, yeah, but what about the Romans? Or when are you going to produce that apocalyptic sign? Or why aren't you and your disciples within the Jewish law? Or who is going to sit at your right and left in the kingdom? Who is to say that we are any different? I imagine that most of our questions would revolve around why. Like why didn't I get that promotion? Or why am I not married? Or why do I struggle with X? Or why did this happen in the world? Or why did this happen to me? And we are convinced that figuring out all of the reasons why will square every corner of our life. But deep down, we know that's not how it works. And even if God did answer all of our whys, chances are we're not going to be satisfied with it. If God told me the reason a child dies, it would not satisfy the ache of the child dying. And the fundamental question we are too afraid to ask because we struggle with the rest of humanity is this. Is the story true? 
Every other God, every other thing that vies for my affection, every other craving that promises me something, every other dream that I have tells me something, but nobody else has said, come to me if you are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. No other king has given up himself for the sake of those who would kill him. No other God has said, I will forgive you, and it will be my shed blood that will be that forgiveness. No other God has become human. As Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The word, which to the Greeks of the day was translated logos, which was when everything was stripped down. The logos was the collection of ideas and philosophies that made sense of the entire world, the purpose and reason for all of life. So John opens up his gospel by saying the logos, the reason and purpose behind all reality was not an idea, but a person born through the womb of a mother who sweated and cried, who showed compassion and weakness, empathy and patience. This is the confounding mystery of God that he would become human. This is both the story of the Bible and the point of the Bible. We wrap up our teaching series on the scriptures, and we've looked at different angles of the Bible. We've looked at various approaches. We've looked at hard passages, ways to read it, all of which are very important, which is why we did it. But what good is it if you gain the whole Bible and lose your soul? Is it possible to contain all the right answers and be biblically literate and miss the point? Is it possible to be theologically astute and miss the Logos, the person of God? To read the scripture and understand it is good. To have the scriptures read you and become it is better. And to be drawn in by the wonder and mystery of the God of the story and find yourself both perplexed and amazed that you are in it, that is the best. So what I want to do is take this chunk teaching in like four chunks, sin, suffering, grace, and glory. I think you can summarize the entire story of the Bible in those four words. So here are two stories. When we think of sin, we automatically think of impurity, as is biblical. And one of the starkest images of impurity and uncleanness is when God encounters Moses in Exodus. God has told Moses to leave Mount Sinai and is giving him the exhortation to take his people into the land of Canaan. But Moses is pleading with the Lord that he not leave his people. So he says this. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. This is God. Delighted to take in Moses with the covering of his hand, but dangerous enough to kill him if he catches a glimpse of glory. 
This is God, the one who is kind enough to warm us in the fire of his love, but dangerous enough to burn us with the fire of his glory. This is God who will both protect us with his presence and consume us with his passion. He is kind and compassionate and fierce and holy. The image of God here is that to look on God's face is a death sentence because we cannot stand in the presence of the living God and live. Now, I want you to imagine that you are an expert fisherman named Peter for a second. Fishing is your vocation. You do it every day. People on the seaport know you. You have a pretty healthy reputation for knowing what and how to fish. One day a man comes up to you, addresses you by name, and asks if he can get in your boat. He knows it's your boat because he has addressed you, and so you oblige. You row him out to a few feet in the sea so the majority of people on the land can see him, and he begins teaching from your boat. And you begin hearing this person teaching about the things of God. Maybe it was about turning the other cheek. And Peter who will one day take a weapon to cut off the ear of a man, thinks of all of his anger issues. Or maybe it was let your yes be yes and your no be no. So Peter, who will one day lie about even knowing Jesus, considers all the white lies he told that day. Or maybe it was don't be anxious about your life. And Peter, who will one day have a panic attack on this same lake, has all of his fears rise to the surface. Or maybe Peter feels some combination of shame. What is the story of his life, the choices he has made, and the choices that have been made for him, and hope, what he could be, who he could become, what stepping into his true identity might look like. So Jesus finishes up his sermon, and Peter plans on rowing him back to shore, and Jesus says, Simon, throw your nets out again. Now Jesus is a wood maker turned Jewish teacher. Peter is the fisherman, the expert in the work. And there could have been a litany of exchanges that Peter had with Jesus, like, thank you for the advice, but I will take it from here. Or fish don't really bite in broad daylight, so you might want to run that one back. Uh, But here's what he says. Master, we have worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. He does what Jesus wants him to do, rather than what he would normally do by himself. This is the definition of faith. Peter does not see what Jesus sees, but is willing to do what Jesus says. This is discipleship. And you know the rest of the story, right? So much fish are caught, the nets nearly break. And it would have been easy for Peter to say, beginner's luck. (laughs) Or, hey, thanks, same time tomorrow. Doesn't say any of that. This is what he says. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. By the way, this is the only time Luke refers to Peter's full name in the entire gospel, which typically means, I know exactly who you are. You cannot hide. This is not a coffee side chat or a friendly meetup. In some ways, scholars call this a violent encounter because Peter comes face to face with who he really is and provokes a desperate cry for help. Unclean, unworthy, undone, physically brought to his knees. So every perception that Peter had of himself 
Every desire, every ambition, every craving, everything Peter wanted portrayed of who he was, his accomplishments as a fisherman, his competence as a man, and his reputation that he was keeping with his buddies. In this moment, it all drops. Because what happens when sinful people come face to face with God? The outer person dies and the inner one is birthed. What we see in the story of Moses, which is look at God's face and die, we also see in the story of Peter, except this time the false self dies and the true self comes to life. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So when we open up the Bible, our grave tendency is to think that this book is full of people who did it correctly, And it could not be more opposite because from page one of the story, not one gets it right. The severing that has happened between God and us affects each of us. The leaders of Israel are marked by scandal. Abraham deceives the Egyptians into believing that Sarah was not his wife and sells her to Pharaoh to save his own skin. Apparently, in Genesis 26, Isaac does the exact same thing that he learned from his father and convinces the people of Gerar that Rebekah is his sister, not his wife, to protect his own skin. Moses murdered an Egyptian and was generally fearful. As the king of Israel, David, raped a woman and had her husband killed. And the entire book of Judges is Israel worshiping at the altar of false gods. The Bible is not painting a picture of exemplary people. The scriptures are full of people who are deceitful, who have family splits, who backstab, who are gluttonous, who lie. But the comforting thing, the most comforting thing about the Bible is that it is not describing a fantasy land experience. It is describing our experience. We inhabit family drama, real-time affairs, slander, abandonment, and impatience. And they don't just mark our world conceptually. This marks our everyday stuff of life. And so we read the scriptures. And we read our own life. And we are grateful that God has provided a way out from the consequences of our sin. And I believe this is where we tend to go astray. By God's grace. By God's grace, we can be saved from the consequences of our sin. Our issue is that we want to be saved from the consequences rather than the sin. It was the most startling thing to the Jewish people. They wanted to be saved from the consequences of their sin. Roman occupation. They wanted to be saved from the tyranny that their sinful choices had afforded, which was persecution. But the announcement of God's arrival in Matthew 1.21 is this. He will save his people from their sins. The overriding message of the arrival of God is not that he is going to spare people from judgment. He's going to do much more than that. He's going to transform people into wholeness. You see how they are not the same thing? Like they are connected. But they are not the same thing. I think for too long we have taught the Bible is merely a story about an explanation of escaping punishment for our sin. But the story and explanation is that God has come to save people from their sin. Alexander Solhenistan says, If there were only evil people somewhere 
committing insidiously committing evil deeds. And it was necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Salvation from our sin is not merely about a geographical location at the end of our life, but whole transformation now. It is about being changed. It's not about going to a good place as much as it is about becoming a different type of people. That's why the prayer Jesus prayed is, May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let what is happening there happen here. Not take me to heaven, but let heaven invade earth. And Jesus' first words of his ministry, the first words out of his mouth, are repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is not a gospel of consuming Jesus' merits to make sure we get to heaven when we die. It is a lifestyle reorientation that produces disciples, not consumers, all-out worshipers, not attenders. Now, I might be wrong... But I suspect that so much of our relationship with the Bible and subsequently with Jesus himself is a relationship marked by failure. And I say that because we live in a success-fail society, right? There is some barometer, some measurement that comes to your spiritual success. If you meet the mark, you are successful. And if you miss it, you are failing. Perhaps it's not that overt for you. But for the majority of the evangelical church, that feels accurate. And I just want to say that failure is a marker of the Christian life. How can one experience grace if one does not come to terms with failure? Brennan Manning says, Many of us are haunted by our failure to have done with our lives what we long to accomplish. The disparity between our ideal self and our real self the grim specter of past infidelities, the awareness that I am not living what I believe, the relentless pursuit of conformity, and the nostalgia for lost innocence reinforces a nagging sense of existential guilt. I have failed. This is the cross we never expected and the one we find hardest to bear. This is the cross we never expected and the one we find hardest to bear. The gap between who I long to be And who I am is where we live so much of the time. Up until we had children in our home, I thought I was making significant progress with the fruit of the Spirit. I assumed I was patient, but that's because my patience wasn't being tried. I assumed I had self-control until I got into a moment where I seemingly had no control. I was certain, dead certain, that I was gentle until, of course, I looked in the face of another and realized gentleness is not a description I would give myself right now. And it's not that this intimate community has caused anger. It has just revealed it. It has not caused impatience. It has just revealed it. It hasn't created anything in me. It has just brought everything in me to the light. And my wrestle is not refusing that recognition. But then I look at the lives of Jesus' disciples. The man whom Jesus would lay the foundation of the church on claimed he never knew him. James wanted power at the right hand of God in return for his service to the kingdom. Philip was not convinced that Jesus was one with the Father. And scores of the disciples assumed Calvary was the last scene. And yet Jesus shows up to Peter on Easter night and restores him. 
James is not known for his selfish ambition, but for his sacrifice. Philip ended up recognizing the father in Jesus and the disciples were sent out into Jerusalem beyond his or upon his ascension. Your life, my life will be marked by failure. But it is not failure that keeps you from Jesus. It is our effort to dig our heels in and not come to two terms with it. And it is our humble recognition that the kingdom of God is not built by world changers, but by nobodies whose lives can sometimes feel like failures. The church takes so much of its cues from the business world. Let's get our most gifted leaders, our most profound executors, our strategists, and let's get together and build something significant up and to the right because we believe success is exponential growth. Budgets, buildings, butts, baptisms. None of those things are inherently wrong. In fact... Those things by themselves could mean the spirit is breaking out and that transformation is sweeping through a people. But let's just get something on the table. The way the world builds its empire is not the way Jesus builds his church. It is not through extraordinary acts of human development or the assimilation of a talented staff or the retention of five-star leaders. It is through the quiet moments of genuine desperation and a simple prayer. God help. It's a little bit of the children of God opening up her hands. And it's a lot of the person of God filling them up. In the Old Testament, the overriding story is God driving the Israelites out of Egypt. And in the New Testament, the overriding story is God driving Egypt out of the church. The bondage just goes deeper than we think. We think the problem is external. And there are many, 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 many problems that are external, but each of them are birthed internally. We have to reckon with our sin. Now, with the effect of the fall, not only do we face our sin, but we deal with suffering. And let me just say pastorally for a moment that life is hard. It is hard for a lot of us right now. I don't think since I've been a pastor in this community that there has been so much acute suffering at one time. Um, in so many people's lives. And naturally, we want to be alleviated from our suffering, right? It is a human instinct for us to not want to suffer. And I am not saying that it's ever bad to pray against that. Much of the Psalms are David praying that he would not suffer. Even Jesus in the garden is asking for his suffering to be removed. Is there not another way? He's asking to the point of sweating blood. I imagine most of us haven't even gotten to that point. But in moments of suffering, our first instinct might be to ask, is God real? But our deeper instinct is to ask, is God here? Frederick Buchner says, for what we need to know, of course, is not just that God exists. Not just that beyond the steely brightness of the stars, there is a cosmic intelligence of some kind that keeps the whole show going but that there is a God right here in the thick of our day-to-day lives who may not be writing messages about himself and the stars, but in one way or another is trying to get messages through our blindness as we move around down here knee-deep in the fragrant muck and misery and marvel of the world. It is not objective proof of God's existence we want, but the experience of God's presence. That is the miracle we are really after, and that is also, I think, the miracle that we really get. 
God came to us to dignify our suffering. No suffering goes wasted. See the completely innocent and evil murder of the Son of God himself. The abhorrent crucifixion of God, the worst evil committed in the world, is what history hangs on. The beauty of God is that he is actually able to stand in solidarity with us in our suffering. That is why Hebrews 4.15 is such a comfort. Jesus can not only relieve us from our troubles, but he is with us in them. When relationships go sour, when marriages suffer, when health complications hit, when feelings of futility come in, when family dynamics are extraordinarily challenging, when someone betrays us, and when we are misunderstood, what happens is we feel claustrophobic because it's like the world is caving in. And Jesus never leaves your claustrophobic side. Intuitively, we feel that the harder life gets, the lonelier it gets. We sink further into pain. We sink further into perceived isolation. But the scriptures correct us. We are not alone. We are never alone. We have never been alone. I think the way Ellie Weisel writes in his memoir, Night, is just extraordinarily helpful here. If you haven't read it, I think it is mandatory reading. He was a prisoner in Auschwitz during the Holocaust. There's one section where he recounts seeing a young boy walked up to be hanged. Where is God? Where is he? Someone behind me asked. For more than half an hour, the child in the noose stayed there, struggling between life and death, dying in a slow agony under our eyes. And we had to look him full in the face. He was still alive when I passed in front of him. His tongue was still red. His eyes were not yet glazed. Behind me, I heard the same man asking, Where is God now? And I heard a voice within me answer him, Where is he? Here he is, hanging here on this gallow. Sin is not where God identifies with us. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. But suffering, God is not exempt from. And so in our deepest agony, God understands. He wasn't a distant onlooker peering down in our world thinking, geez, good luck with that. He wore the pain himself and knew what it meant to cry out, God, where are you? The cross, the public execution of the Son of God, is the pervasive image of Orthodox Christianity. We pretty this up. We put a light behind it. Isn't that a beautiful cross? Yes. It is. It's beautiful. But it wasn't really beautiful. It was mockery. It was humiliation. But it is the picture of the upside downness of the kingdom. It's that the untouchable God living in unapproachable light gets wounded. I heard an interview this week with Bethany Allen, who's a pastor in the Northwest. And she was sharing her life story and the pain of her parents' divorce as a teenager at 14. And it was seven years of silence from her mom because her mom had left her, uh, her and her husband and her family. And she was explaining the fallout and the heartache and the pain in her own story and, she sh- and shared stories of divorce. And she said something so profound. I don't know when, but at some point I realized that for me, when Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, it clicked. Jesus promised me two things 
And he didn't promise me one thing. He never promised me a mom. He promised me trouble. And he promised me Jesus. He promised me trouble and he promised me Jesus. There is nothing that can be so difficult to square in the human experience than the fact that sometimes life's hardest truths to stomach are the only ones that we can cling to. Now, grace, in a cultural moment where truth is subjective and relative, it is important that the church be grounded in a firm foundation of truth. Hence, the last two months of us talking about the Bible, we believe the Holy Scriptures. We believe them to be inspired. What does God say about who he is and what does God say about our relationship to him and his world? It is important. It is necessary. But for thousands of years, churches have spent so much time debating and decreeing truth. In the history of the world, how rare to find a church looking to outgrace her rivals. Philip Yancey calls grace the last best word. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. This is the lifeblood of the entire New Testament. Not from his fullness we have received pep talk upon pep talk. Or anger and frustration. Or apathy and carelessness. Or what I think sometimes those of us who try to maybe counter push the ultra like truth is everything narrative. Um, We're not pushing a Jesus that is full of sentimentality or like a gentle pat on the back. No, we just keep receiving grace in this simple recognition, right? Wow, who am I? And wow, who are you? I find this poem by the Indian poet Tagore to be the best explanation of grace. No, it is not yours to open buds into blossoms. Shake the bud, strike it. It is beyond your power to make it blossom. Your touch soils it. You tear its petals to pieces and strew strew them in the dust. But no colors appear and no perfume. Ha, it is not for you to open the bud into blossom. He who can open the bud does it so simply. He gives it a glance and the life sap stirs through its veins. At his breath, the flower spreads its wings and flutters in the wind. Colors flush out like heart longings. The perfume betrays a sweet secret. He who can open the buds does it so simply. What can you do to make it grow? Like a flower opening up, you just receive sunlight and rain. You situate yourself to where you receive light and water. The flower does nothing to say, I deserve rain or I am entitled to sun. The sun and rain just pour out constantly. This is our God. All we have to do is put ourselves outside to receive him. From the beginning pages of the Bible, Yahweh literally breathes life into Adam and Eve. And he gives himself to leaders like Joseph and Nehemiah. He proves himself to the Israelites through words and the Ten Commandments, through a burning bush, a pillar of fire, bread from heaven, the opening of the seas, the closing of a lion's mouth. He gives them his presence in the tabernacle and gives them freedom in the way the calendar is made. From Ezekiel's vision in the Valley of Dry Bones to Jesus breathing the Holy Spirit on the Israelites, 
We inherit a posture of receiving God. James says every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Paul's letter effuses gratitude, which is the only reasonable response to the gracious gift of being loved by God. What are we doing in this picture? We're just having open hands. The story of the Bible is of an inapproachable God getting close, of a perfect God becoming sin, of a merciful God taking his own judgment, of the creator becoming the creation, of the priest becoming the sacrifice, of the immortal becoming the mortal, and of the invisible putting clothes on. From his fullness, we have received grace upon grace upon grace. All of life is grace. It is everywhere. We live in a Christ-soaked universe. In the movie, Captain Phillips, beloved American icon, Tom Hanks, my brother, has a moving last three minutes of the film. After the hijacking of the Maersk, Alabama, Captain Phillips is rescued almost inexplicably. And while recovering from the shock and chaos and confusion of nearly having his head removed, the nurse looks down at the captain as he is rolled back on the gurney and says, you are safe now. Dead one minute, literally with a sword to his neck, alive the next. The only words he can muster out in three minutes of a rolling camera is, thank you. Grace breaks in the warmth of a child in her parents' arms, the perfect day to walk outside, the aurora borealis, a song that moves you to tears, the Broadway shows, the intimacy of friendship, the joy of a job well done, the innocent being declared innocent, And seeing the world and walking in another person's shoes. It's all grace. Until we recognize that our next breath is grace, we will not experience the depth of gratitude to a God who is just breathing out his life into the world. Which leads us to glory. And when we think of glory, we think of brightness. And it is true, Revelation tells us the sun will no longer be needed because God is going to light up the city by just being there. And ultimate glory is when our lives are completely and fully transformed. And yet, the kingdom of God is at hand. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What does glory look like? Don't you find it a touch fascinating that we don't really ever get a description of what Jesus looked like? He was not a merely reflection of light. John says that he was the source of light. And yet that source never gets identified by any physical attributes. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod. Kabod was this word for transcendence, the very essence of God. No one can glimpse my transcendence. And it was that face of transcendence that became tearful eyes and a sweaty brow that John is writing about. No one has ever seen God, and yet God the Son has shown us exactly who Yahweh is. And so the joy of following Jesus is that we start where Peter starts. Lord, get away from me. And the joy from there is we move in the rhythms of grace, not self-sabotage. And as we anchor our lives around the person of Jesus, we adopt his lifestyle and his ways and his gracious heart and his desire for the world. We get changed or we get glorified. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 
And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Our reading of the Bible is to that end. Taking on the heart of the suffering servant, empowered by the Spirit to do the stuff of Jesus and to become people of love who look on God's face, receive his love, and then out of that love are compelled to chase after the world because we have been convinced that the story is actually true. That it starts, that it starts in Genesis 1 with a triune God who loves the world so much he made it, not Genesis 3 where terrible, despicable people. The story starts in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. And that each person has value and dignity and is not defined by their sin, but by their God. And all we long to do is to create a community where we live in such a way that the only explanation is the unexplainable love of God. That is what I dream of for this church. And I think that is what God dreams of. For this church. An unexplainable community apart from the love of God. That is the story of the Bible. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, in this moment, we just receive your love. Thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving your life for us and to us. We want to worship you with our lives. We want to honor you with our lives. May this be a church that is unexplainable apart from the love of God. Help us be people who receive from you and then go out empowered by your spirit to do what Jesus did. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.